ministry of Community Bible Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this new year to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome your questions. If there is a issue you're studying God's word on, or you'd like biblical counsel on, all you have to do is pick up the phone. The number locally is area code 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859. Or our toll-free number, it's 877, the call letters, W-A-G-P. 980. When you call in, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. And we receive questions as well from TBL. That stands for the Bible line. You can uh, email us or uh, you can text us at TBL at WAGP.net. Either way, we will get those questions and they'll come right here on the screen in front of us. As always, Rick, it's great to be here and uh, we thank the Lord for another year and another opportunity to minister to God's people. And if we can help, we'll do our best by his grace and mercy. Indeed, Pastor. And uh, we do want to Again, remind everybody that uh, you can just go ahead and give us a call at TBL or at uh, 87, I'm sorry, 843-525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, you can always uh, listen to past programs from the Bible line uh, by visiting our website at WAGP.net, and you've got our uh, various uh, programs there. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yes, glad for your call this morning. What can we do to be of help? Pastor Bergie, I have a question about the uh, Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, and the birth of Jesus uh, in terms of where— how old was he when the uh, Magi uh, visited him? Right. And secondly, um, based on the scriptures, I'm having difficulty understanding, did uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, did they go to Egypt after they left Bethlehem initially, or did they go to Nazareth oh, after the, they initially Yeah, left? those are great questions. Of course, the, uh, the exact age is not given in terms of when the Magi uh, arrived uh, to worship the Lord Jesus. But one gross error is that very often people will have the Magi at the manger. Uh, you know, we set up a manger scene every year. We always have the Magi kind of off in a distance uh, just because we want to teach our children and our grandchildren right theology. But obviously the Magi were not there at the manger because when you come into Matthew's gospel, in the uh, second chapter, it's very, very specific in terms of what happened. It says, um, and they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. 
and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So when uh, they come to Jerusalem, of course, or they come initially to Bethlehem, and uh, it was there that Herod, uh, there's seven Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament, uh, five that are mentioned in the Gospels and two in the book of Acts. And then Herod the Great is referenced, but no detail in Acts as well. Uh, but this particular Herod, Herod the Great, the first in a line of Herods that would follow, of course, wanted uh, to find out where this king would be born. And so he confronts the religious uh, leaders of the day and of course, they rightly know what the scriptures say in the book of Malachi, uh, that in you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, I'm reading Matthew 2, 6, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so with that said, uh, the scripture affirms that Herod secretly called the Magi and as- ascertained from them the time the star appeared. So there's a time factor now that is set in his mind. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Of course, that's all, you know, chatter. He doesn't really mean that, obviously. So based on the fact that he ascertains the time, and of course, where do these guys come from? Well, we know that they're east of Jerusalem when they uh, come. They probably came from Babylon. In fact, uh, the term magi, sometimes rendered wise men, is the same term that's used in the Greek Old Testament of those people who were alive and were consultants to the king during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, if you remember, Daniel was the one who saved all their lives by his ability to interpret the dream. And if no one could interpret it, they were all going to be X'd out and put to death. No doubt from that, there were some people who realized that Daniel was different from them. And I have no doubt that we'll meet some of those magi that were converted. Assuming that to be true, and it is an assumption, I recognize that, you could see probably a long line of magi wise men that would have known what Daniel had written about. Daniel had given the time frame by which the Messiah was born. And so these magi, whether they are from Babylon in that section of the East or not, uh, the fact is, is that they would have known the time frame that Messiah was going to come because they knew the prophecy of Daniel. Not to mention that the book of Numbers tells us that there would be a star that would be associated by his birth, with his birth. And so when they see this supernatural star, no ordinary star, they know that must be the Messiah's star because this is the time frame. So if they came from, say, the Babylonian area, it would have taken them several months, about four to six months to get there. So uh, assuming uh, that that's true and you're Herod and you want to obliterate any possibility of Messiah the King sitting on the throne, then you kill all the babies two years and under just to cover your bases. So again, it's, it's a theological guess because the Bible does not tell us but clearly they're no longer in a manger, so to speak. Jesus is not in a manger. Uh, he is in a house when the wise men come. So some period of time had passed. Of course, um, when they depart, the Bible says in Matthew 2, 
that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is in search of the child. So they go on to Egypt. So they leave Bethlehem and they go to Egypt. And then we're told in Matthew 2 and verse 19, but when Herod was dead, this is Herod the Great, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who had sought the child's life are dead. And so he rose and he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, this is the second Herod that's mentioned in the New Testament, Herod Archelaus. He's the oldest son of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod actually had nine, some say 10 wives. We know he had at least nine. Not the nicest guy in the world. If you don't like your wife, well, you slit her throat, you have her killed. He killed his own mother. I mean, this guy was a vicious man. Well, this is his oldest son that he has with a woman by the name of Malface. And his name is uh, uh, Herod Archelaus. He's actually an enthrarch. He wanted the title king, but the Roman government didn't give that to him. In either case, he was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod. And so being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the region of Galilee. So Joseph, in his mind, when he flees to Egypt, discovers that Herod is dead. He's heading back to Judea. Uh, why not go to the Galilean region? Well, no doubt because of the reputation and the scorn that he would have had to have dealt with because Mary, in most people's minds, was pregnant out of wedlock. But nonetheless, God says, don't go back to uh, to Ju- the province of Judea. Go into the regions of Galilee. And so what does he do? He goes back to Nazareth from where he came. And of course, then it says what was spoken through the prophets would thus be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Not what was spoken through the prophets singular, but through the prophets plural, because the collective teaching of the prophets taught that he would be a Nazarene. Anyway, um, I hope that answers your question. The, 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 you have to clearly put the accounts together. So... You know, the angels initially appear to shepherds. They are the ones who are there at the uh, manger scene in Bethlehem. The wise men arrive sometime later when they are in a home. And again, the fact that Herod has all the babies two years and under slaughtered uh, indicates that some months went by because he wanted to cover his basis. It would have taken a minimum of four months to have gotten there. More likely, based on the average time frame, it would have been six months. Uh, They could have taken longer, I suppose. So they were probably there about six months after the birth of the Lord Jesus. Very good. Uh, Very good. All right. Uh, Jed from Nashville, Tennessee writes, uh, Dr. Brogy, our church is using a book by Andy Stanley called Deep and Wide, where he writes the church is a uh, is for unchurched people. In addition, he says he encourages nonbelievers to sign up for short term missions trips, nonbelievers to serve in as many roles as possible and points out that you can join our church online without talking to a real person. And I should say, Rick, this person is giving the page numbers and the actual quotations from the book. Indeed. And then he goes on to say, then uh, 
recently, he said that Christianity does not hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. And as I've heard you say in a sermon, though you did not use his name, he also said in 2016 in reference to a question about Adam and Eve that the foundation of our faith is not the Scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history. And the issue is always, who is Jesus? That's always the issue. The Scripture is simply a collection of ancient documents that tell us that story. Here's why I believe this actually happened. Not because the Bible says so, but because of the Gospels. Jesus talks about Adam and Eve. I'm not sure we should be using his book, Jed says. I'm not sure what to do because I respect my pastor, but I differ with him and would appreciate your thoughts and thank you for your ministry. Well, uh, it's an excellent question. Let me see if I can uh, respond to what you're asking. Uh, Can you leave it up there so I can see the uh, quotes there? Uh, Thanks, Rick. Uh, Deep and Wide is a book that Andy Stanley wrote. Uh, The first quote that he gives is the church is for unchurched people. That is categorically false. The church is not for unchurched people. The church is for the body of Christ. Now, I will respect Andy Stanley for his desire to want to reach unchurched people. But if you start with the premise that the church is for the unchurched, then that is going to determine how you build a worship service. And the worship service, while it does not exclude unbelievers, is not designed for unbelievers. They are bystanders, so to speak, as 1 Corinthians 14 indicates. But the worship service is for the people of God to worship. And when an unbeliever comes in, Paul says, and he sees people in true, genuine worship, and he hears the word of God being taught, not a seeker-sensitive sermon, then he's going to fall on his face and worship the one true God. Um, I know it says here on page 79, you reference that, quote, he encourages non-believers to sign up for short-term mission trips. I think that lacks wisdom in my opinion. Um, again, if your, your goal is to try to reach them by exposing them to a mission trip, I'm not sure that's good stewardship because, uh, you know, we have mission trips every year, cost several thousand dollars for an individual to go. And in terms of stewardship of those funds, uh, a believer should go, and that believer has to meet certain criteria for him to go on one of our mission trips, a certain level of maturity. It's not a vacation. There has to be a pure motive there to want to go to a foreign country. And we want to equip those people to uh, share the gospel. Uh, So if they're going to be funded by the church or by other believers to go on a short-term mission trip, which is true in most cases, to me it would be very poor stewardship to send an unbeliever there, not to mention that an unbeliever may not represent Christ well. Um, He, in addition, writes non-believers should serve as in many roles as possible. And, of course, uh, that's on page 80 of this book, Deep and Wide, that you reference. Uh, Again, I would respectfully differ with that. I think that would be a huge error. Uh, Andy Stanley, by the way, came out and did a sermon on uh, homosexuals in the church, and it was a very well thought through illustration. He took down the uh, YouTube sermon off of his website because it was so controversial, though you can because other believers listened to it and transcripted the sermon. And so you can read the actual transcripts because I hate to misquote anyone 
because I know how many times I have been misquoted. But I actually, one, watched the entire sermon and then have since read the actual transcript. A a number of pastors, like Michael Youssef, who we air here, I I had uh, uh, a meeting with Michael Youssef just a month or so ago. And a number of pastors, like Dr. Youssef, have asked Anley Stanley to categorically define marriage between a man and a woman. He has still refused to come out and to define exactly what he would consider to be a true biblical marriage. And people who go to that church will tell you that there are homosexual people who are serving in positions of leadership. And he brings that out in the sermon himself. So I'm not saying anything unfair about him. Look, I I, want to reach gay people with the gospel, but you cannot sanction their service in the church because service in the local assembly is to be done by members. And to be a member of the local assembly, you must be born again. You must be born again to have the ability to appropriately serve God's people. Otherwise, you send a mixed message. You send a message, well, it really doesn't matter how you live. You can come to church and feel good about yourself, and we'll give you a place to serve. So like these gay people are serving as ushers, and um, we'll let you do that, and there'll be no consequence. That's, That's a huge mistake. That sends a mixed message, and it waters down the church, and it's a huge error. And I have young pastors who contact me on a regular basis and they're looking for leadership and wisdom. And no, I can't endorse this book. Uh, In addition, you quote here that he recently said, and actually I quoted this in a sermon I did on Christmas. And I know I made some people mad because I used his name. Christianity does not hinge, he said, on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. That is totally false. That is gross error. That's not a secondary issue. That is a departure from historical Orthodox Christianity. Christianity does hinge on the, I would use the term historical accounts of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Because if Jesus Christ were not virgin born, if his conception was not that of a virgin, then he would have been a sinner. If you have no virgin birth, you have no sinless Savior. If you have no sinless Savior, you have no substitutionary death. If you have no substitutionary death, then there's no salvation for you. So it is a critical, central doctrine. And then the person goes on to say, uh, this person from Tennessee, and as I've heard you say in a sermon, though you did not use his name, he also said in 2016, in reference to a question about Adam and Eve, And I did quote it, and I didn't give his name, but now I'm using his name, and I know I'm going to make some people mad, but I don't care uh, because I've got to do what God leads me to do, and I wanted to give him a chance, you know, but he said, quote, the foundation of our faith is not the scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history, and the issue is always who is Jesus? That's always the issue, he writes. The scripture is simply a collection of ancient documents that tell us the story. Here's why I believe this actually happened. Not because the Bible says so, but because the Gospels, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about Adam and Eve. Um, Look, the Bible is not a collection of stories. I don't even like to describe the Bible in that fashion. It is the foundation of our faith because everything you know about Adam and Eve 
and everything else you believe come from the scriptures. And so you can't say, well, uh, the gospels speak of Adam and Eve as real people, though it never uses their name. But Jesus clearly has that in mind in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, where he deals with the issue of divorce and remarriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. And he's quoting Genesis in reference to Adam and Eve. Um, But the problem with making a statement like that is it depreciates the Old Testament. And now we just put a unique authority in the Gospels. And that's what a lot of liberals are actually doing in our day. And that's how they justify homosexual marriage. And that's why I wish he'd come out and make a definitive statement about his feeling on homosexual marriage. But he's not done that. And he's not done it at the admonition of John MacArthur, at the admonition of uh, leading pastors in the Atlanta area and other leaders, uh, including the president of Southern Seminary and so forth. And so to me, it's a huge, huge mistake. Um, so would I use his book? Absolutely not. I, I, I would not allow his materials to be used at Community Bible Church. I'm not saying that Andy Stanley is a heretic, but he's saying the kind of things that a heretic would say. He's saying the kinds of things that you will often hear as a precursor to apostasy or to gross moral failure. Look, when I started naming Perry Noble, you know, a year or so ago in warning to the people of Beaufort County and especially in warning to my own people, I got a lot of criticism. But, you know, now Perry Noble has, you know, uh, he's, you know, got a huge alcohol problem. His own church had to dismiss him. Um, But look, there comes a point when a pastor has to name names. He needs to name people who are potentially dangerous to the body of Christ. And that's what I would say. That's where Andy Stanley is. In my own seminary where I went that used to promote his books and stuff, now have pulled back. And um, so uh, I'm, I'm obviously disappointed with him. Uh, in what he's been teaching in the lack of uh, sound doctrine. Uh, remember, everything we believe is found in the 66 books of the Bible, all of them. And that's what we need to look to. That's the basis of our faith, because everything you know about Jesus, everything you know about Adam and Eve, everything you know about marriage comes from the Bible, from the infallible, inerrant word of God. I think this is what he's doing. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I think this is what he's doing. He's softening the message so that you can have more and more unbelievers come to your church without being offended. So look, I have a dear friend who attends church there and I've encouraged him to go elsewhere and he's witnessed, you know, homosexuals being baptized at North Point Church where their partner is standing there watching them. Look, that, that, that's wrong. That's an evil And I don't know where he's going with this whole thing, but I don't think it's good. All right, let's go on to the next one. I appreciate that question. 843-525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Nicole from St. Louis, actually we have a live caller there. Let me see which one of these lines it is. I believe it's this one here. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we be of help today? Yes, I have a question um, about angels, fallen angels, actually. Okay. Um, I understand from, from Scripture 
that uh, the third of the angels uh, fell when Satan got thrown out of heaven. Those are the demons that, uh, or his army, or whatever. But in um, Second Peter, second chapter and the fourth verse, Peter talks about um, angels that left their first abode that are locked away, um, uh, being held for the ultimate punishment. Um, is that a part? Are those angels a part of the original fallen angels with Satan, or um, is that another group of fallen angels? And I'll just um, hang up and listen. Well, it's a, it's a good question, and if you uh, go to searchthescriptures.org, click on my Genesis series, I deal with this issue in really an hour-long answer uh, if you deal with Genesis 6, because in Genesis 6, there's an interesting statement that the New Testament references. And in Genesis 6, we are told um, specifically the Nephilim, or Nephilim, if you prefer, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God, the Bene Elohim in Hebrew, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. So there's two groups that are mentioned here. It doesn't say the sons of men came into the daughters of men, but it says the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, a term used in the Old Testament to refer to angels, both good and evil, like in the book of Job, the first few chapters. So there were some angels that, and again, the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter referenced these angels and what they did and the evil that they performed, that they left their proper domain. Uh, that is, they functioned in a way in which was unacceptable. The book of Jude, by the way, and I should say Second Peter 2, in many ways are parallel, um, not because they copied each other. They're independent writers, but they're inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And so Jude gives us a little fuller account, so I'm going to turn there. And now I desire to remind you that though um, you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then the next two words in verse 7 of Jude is just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, in the same way as these who? In the same way as these angels who didn't keep their proper abode. They did something that was unnatural. It was unnatural for these angels to cohabitate with women. Now, every time in the Bible an angel appears, they always appear in male form. And we know from Scripture a number of passages, like Hebrews, angels can manifest themselves to people unaware. Uh, that is, you could meet an angel and not know it's an angel because the angel looks perfectly human. And so there are angels who appear um, in human form in the Scripture. And some of these angels left the role that God had called them to play, and they cohabitated with women. And the offspring was wicked. And I think it's part of the explanation for the judgment that follows. And I think what Satan was probably trying to do was to corrupt the line, the human race from which the Messiah would come. And so there's a parallel, just as the people in Sodom and Gomorrah left their proper domain, men with men, women with women, these angels also did what was unnatural. And the Bible describes them here as being in eternal bonds. 
Peter in Second Peter describes them as being, the word is actually used Tartarus. And so there is a section of hell uh, in which a certain group of angels abode. Now, the number of fallen angels we get from the book of Revelation chapter 12. And it appears, um, well, it doesn't appear, it's taught in uh, Revelation 12 that a third of the angels with Satan are swept down to the earth during the time of the great tribulation period. So I think it appears in a general sense that the number of fallen angels was a third of all the angels that God created. And there are myriads upon myriads upon myriads, millions and millions of angels that God created. However, with that said, there are some angels that are confined until the final day of judgment, and they have no freedom like the angels in Revelation 12 who are swept down to the earth. They have no freedom like the fallen angels of Ephesians 6 or Daniel chapter 10 to wage spiritual warfare against nations and against uh, the people of God. These are a group of angels who did something that was so wicked that God wanted to underscore that uh, they are in a confined place. But I think, you know, how many were there? I don't know. You know, maybe several hundred. We don't know. We're not told. But I think as a general rule, it's safe to say that a third of the angels fell. And again, the only place we get that number is found here in the book of Revelation chapter 12. And these angels are come down to the earth. Obviously, those angels that are confined who are in eternal bonds of darkness have no role during the time of the great tribulation period. We'll study this, by the way, when we begin the book of Revelation. We're going to be going chapter by chapter and verse by verse through that great book. Good question. I think we have someone else waiting, so let's go there. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy and Rick. Um, my question is, Pastor Brogy, you've done many sermons, and I'm looking for a sermon on the rapture and being caught up. I know it's in First Thessalonians, and I was discussing it with a friend, and I'm trying to direct her to a sermon that, so that you can obviously explain it far better than I can. Yeah, I would probably point her to First uh, Thessalonians for the message I did. It would be uh, separated. First Thessalonians four. the sermon picks up in verse 13. So I preached all the way through First Thessalonians. So First Thessalonians four thirteen to 18. And that would be helpful to her. And you might encourage her to listen to the series on Revelation, because when we come to the book of Revelation, we will deal with the issue of the rapture. Um, the book of Revelation is divided into three parts. Chapter one, the things that he sees. Uh, chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, and he describes seven churches, and then the things that will be beginning in chapter 4. And what's interesting is the church is mentioned in the first three chapters, but when you come into the fourth chapter, the church is not in view. And there's a reason given based on what Jesus says in the third chapter. The church will not be here for the great tribulation. Now, there are some people who make the rapture of the church and the second coming one event. And to come to that conclusion, they do not literally interpret Scripture. And the Bible models for us a literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. That doesn't mean that we ignore symbols or parts of speech and that are metaphorical in nature. Uh, but when you, say, uh, have a symbol 
and the symbol is interpreted, then you literally believe the symbol that God has interpreted for us. So it's still a literal interpretation of scripture. And so there are some who make the second coming and the rapture all one big event. To do that, they also have to erase the millennial reign of the Messiah, that he will literally rule for a thousand years because of other uh, implications of making that one event happen. But the Bible really speaks of two distinct events. One is when he comes for his saints in the air. The second is when he comes back with his saints to the earth. And so Jesus made some promises to us that we're going to reign with him. We're going to rule with him. He gave some parables that were based around it. Uh, The concept of a kingdom where the Messiah literally rules upon the earth is an Old Testament concept that God gave to the people of Israel. Uh, Some unconditional promises that someone would sit on David's throne, 2 Samuel 7. That being true, God is going to keep his promises. Even when um, Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel and told of her supernatural conception that she was going to uh, experience in her womb, God made a promise to her that her son would sit on David's throne. And so with all that being said, the rapture is when God catches up the church. Some would say, well, the term rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, it's found in the Latin Bible. It's not found in the English Bible. It's the harpazo, which means they caught up. We shall all be caught up, Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In Latin, uh, we get the word raptura that comes into the verb rapto, which comes into English as rapture. So I don't care what you call it, then it's a semantical issue, but it is found in the Bible, in the Latin Bible, but it doesn't mean because it's not found in the English Bible that it's not taught. The, the word Trinity is not found in the English Bible anywhere, but we would consider someone who does not affirm that God is one who has revealed himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. If someone doesn't affirm that, we would say they're less than orthodox in their belief. So first he comes and catches up the church and then the principal function, of course, of the 70th week of Daniel, which we studied in Daniel nine. And that person could listen to Daniel nine and the sermons around that. That might be helpful to them as well. But the function of the 70th week primarily is first and foremost to bring Israel to genuine faith where they will acknowledge that Yeshua is the Messiah. And it's also a final chance for people who've never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power to be able to respond, though most people will not respond during that time. And that concludes with the second coming. Now, sometimes people just use the term second coming and they include all those events. Like we refer to the first coming of Christ and we're speaking about his birth in Bethlehem, his public ministry for three years, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his walking on the earth 40 days after the resurrection, his ascension. We call that all the first coming. So in fairness to some, sometimes they use the term second coming to refer to the whole package, the rapture, the tribulation, the physical return of Christ to earth, the millennial reign. But the rapture, the catching up of the the church is a distinct event from the second coming. First, he comes for his saints. Then he comes with his saints. There are two distinct events separated by seven plus years. And again, a simple sermon that would bring out some of those truths would be 1 Thessalonians 4. But I would encourage your 
consider listening to the series on Revelation because we will go very deep into these issues and explore them with great depth by God's grace. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980 if you have a question on the Bible line. And we had a caller who wanted to have you clarify timing in the Bible. Was it about 2,000 years from Adam to Noah, then 2,000 years from Noah to Jesus, then about 2,000 years from Jesus to where we are in time now? No, it's about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, and then it's about 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, and then it's about 2,000 years from Christ to where we are today. So if you take the chronology of the Bible at face value, about 6,000 years have passed by. Um, in fact, in the Jewish calendar, they, they, they have it very, very close to that uh, in terms of uh, if you ask them what year it was. So, um, yeah, we're talking about 6,000-year time frame. So I hope that helps. All right. Nicole from St. Louis, Illinois, is uh, questioning uh, the following. She says, if my mother, not sure of her salvation, she was raised in the Catholic Church, offers me a rosary that a friend of hers brought back from Jerusalem, should I accept the gift or would I be a stumbling block to my mother for accepting it? Well, um, you know, you don't want to unnecessarily offend a person, but neither do you want to compromise the truth. So if someone thought enough about you to want to give you a set of rosary beads, um, I would receive them, but I would in no way compromise my belief or what I would recognize about rosary beads. I have a pair of rosary beads. Actually, my 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 dad's sister, who was my godmother when I was baptized six days after I was born, uh, gave those to me. Uh, it has uh, a set of rosary beads with a cross with the day of my baptism imprinted on the back of that cross. Um, she had those produced uh, as my godmother. And when I was about 10 years old, she handed those to me. I still have them. Do I pray the rosary? <laughs> no. But I see them as a teaching tool. So like, for instance, uh, when I've taught the discovery class before, on a few occasions, I brought in a set of rosary beads, usually in reference to questions that people have asked about Mary and so forth. Do we pray to Mary? No. Do we pray the rosary? No. It's really a form of vain repetition. And Jesus taught about against such prayer, not to mention we don't pray things like the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners. Now in the hour of our death, amen. You know, you say that over and over and over again. You work through the beads and then, you know, the Lord's prayer and so forth. That becomes vain repetition. And so that's not wise. Uh, and again, we always come through our one mediator, Jesus Christ. But it might be an opportunity to say, hey, mom, thank you. That was really thoughtful of you. And obviously, I don't pray the rosary because the Bible teaches me that I should only pray directly to Jesus. But it was really nice of you to give me these beads and that you were thinking about me. That's what I would do. You, you, you want to, you know, you can get into uh, a, a number of secondary issues with people um, without ever getting to the gospel. So you can talk about, well, I don't believe the Pope is God's man, and I don't believe in the real presence and transubstantiation at the Lord's table and, and harbor and all these things without ever giving the person the gospel. So your goal is first to get them the gospel. And then once they are born again and they have a regenerated heart, 
then as they grow and they learn the scriptures, a lot of these issues will begin to fall by the wayside. So good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate you guys doing this Bible line. It's it's very informative. Our pleasure. What Um, can we do to help? Go ahead. My question is, I'm in Hebrews 5, and it's talking about Melchizedek. Yes. It seems like he's an antitype of Christ. It says he has no genealogy, no beginning, no end. Right. Um, So I was trying to further read on who he was, so I Googled it, and there was a reference to Enoch, which I know is not part of the canon. Right. But the description of him in Enoch was pretty wild. Would would that be accurate, Enoch, accurate or not accurate in the yeah. Either way, you yeah. know, if you could explain who Melchizedek is for me, I would appreciate sure, it. Sure, sure. No, that's a great question. No, let me just first comment on the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not an inspired book from the Word of God. There are a number of books, they're called pseudopigrapha. Uh, pseudo, we get our word false in pigrapha, we get our word graphe. So literally the false writings. And so there were some books that can clearly be dated between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. And the book of Enoch would be one of uh, those books. And it was not inspired by God. It's not part of the canon of Scripture. When you come into the New Testament, you discover that there are certain books that are quoted and the pseudopocrypha is never quoted because uh, they were not considered scripture. When Jesus summarized the Bible, he summarized it by the law, the Psalms and the prophets there in the Emmaus road. And he didn't include the pseudepigraphal writings and for reason because they weren't inspired. Interestingly, in the first edition of the 1611 translation of the Bible that the King James did, they put the apocryphal books in there. And if you read uh, the preface that was originally found in the 1611, and the 1611 proponents today wouldn't want you to read it. There are some Christians who say, I only believe in the 1611 translation of the Bible. But when you read the uh, preface, you discover uh, that they were including the apocryphal books, not because they viewed them as inspired, but because they thought it would offer some helpful history on the way certain people thought uh, in what had actually transpired in that 400 year uh, of silence. So lay that aside. The reason they don't want you to read it is not so much because of that, but because they admitted that there were some limitations in their knowledge of uh, Hebrew, especially that they were uncertain how to translate certain words because they weren't sure what the word meant. Uh, like in Isaiah 14, we get the word Lucifer. Where do they get that in the King James? Not from the Hebrew. They get it from the Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate, Lucifere, which they transliterate as Lucifer in the English Bible. Uh, they just weren't sure what it meant. And so they just had to come up with a word. Um, there was a 1611, then there's a 1611B. And so as soon as they published the 1611, A few months later, they came out with the 1611B with a number of changes because they were still discovering the meaning of words, but they wanted to get God's word out there. Lay that aside, Melchizedek, he's found here in Genesis chapter 14. If you go to search the scriptures, 
org and click on the book of Genesis. I did some 50 sermons on the book of Genesis. And so I deal with this man, Melchizedek. And we're told that after his return from the defeat of Shurtleomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, later, of course, to be named Abraham, gave him Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of all that he had. And he is referenced in the book of Hebrews. Now, some think that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't think that because if it is, it's unique and it doesn't carry any of the other characteristics when Christ appears in the Old Testament uh, as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord never appears after Bethlehem. Uh, It never appears after the Old Testament uh, because when the incarnation takes place, but we know the angel of the Lord was a member of the Godhead and by process of elimination. And I have a whole message on that on my course on angelology. We discovered that it's the second member of the Trinity. So I don't think that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So you wouldn't be heretical for saying that. I think that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And the writer of the Hebrews, I think, is using um, him in that fashion, you know, that he has no uh, genealogy, so to speak. And so Christ is according not to the Aaronic priesthood, which is what he's dealing with in Hebrews 5, but he's according to a different priesthood. He's showing that Christ is superior to the Old Testament system, that he's really a fulfillment of it all. And uh, in that respect, um, we should give our full focus to him, something these Jewish Christians needed to do because they were there was some compromise that was going on in their hearts uh, over some things that they were doing. But he's a type of Christ and that his genealogy is not mentioned. And so in that sense, he, there's no written beginning or end to this man. And it becomes a picture of the Lord Jesus. But again, if you want the hour long answer, go to my series on Genesis um, and it's all divided chapter by chapter and go to the sermon that deals with Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17, and you can uh, listen to a very detailed answer. So great, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. About eight minutes left in the program. And a listener in Palmetto, Florida says when someone dies, if they can be seen in a dream asking for forgiveness from you, is that a vision from God or is that the person visiting you after death? If they were not saved, do they go straight to hell? Well, uh, let me deal with first with the latter part of your question, because that's real simple. To be absent from the body is to be present to the Lord. That's a promise made in reference to Christians. So one second after you die, there about, you know, there's obviously a process where like Lazarus is received by an angel and carried into the presence of the Lord. So I don't know how much, but we're, we're just talking about absent from the body, present with the Lord. So it seems almost instantaneous. And of course, God is in eternity where there's no time. Uh, the Bible is very clear that the only thing that sleeps in the grave is not the immaterial portion of man, but his body. His body sleeps because someday God is going to wake it up and give him a new body. The corollary is true of the unbeliever. 
to be absent from the body is to be present in Hades. Uh, that is the place where lost people go. It's a place of torment. It's a place of punishment. And just as it appears, the believer has a temporary body in heaven. The unbeliever has a temporary body in Hades. Uh, in either case, uh, it's not his final body that God will someday wake up. So there's a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous as well. Um, so very clearly, um, God spells all that out. And again, even in the parables that Jesus tells, because he is the truth, he never uses a parable with error in it. Now, in fairness to some, they would not see uh, Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus being a parable, but an actual historical event. And they may be right. If it is a parable, it's the only parable that has the person in the parable who is named. Um, but lay that aside, the truth of Luke sixteen nineteen to 31 makes it very clear that when a person dies, and, and again, I don't know the state of your loved one, whether they were a believer or an unbeliever, but if they were lost, then they can't come and see you ever. He cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, because he was a believer. And you are in agony, because that person was an unbeliever. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So there's a fixed chasm in which uh, once a person is in heaven or hell, there is no crossing back over. So your question, though, concerns, let's say, and again, uh, let's say for the sake of argument, your loved one was a believer and went to heaven and you saw them in a dream. What stake do you put in a dream? Well, uh, dreams are not necessarily all wrong, but let me just give a word of caution. And I've preached some sermons on this because a lot of people have had dreams and they put more stock in the dream than they put in the word of God. And the Bible is very clear that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, adequate for every good work. And so the Bible, number one, affirms the sufficiency of the scriptures that we don't need, especially in this day with the completed canon, other means for God to communicate to us that our first line of defense should always be the written, infallible, inerrant word of God. Now, I wouldn't discount the possibility that God could give a dream. Uh, certainly, the prophet Joel says in the last days, men will dream dreams and so forth. And of course, Peter quotes that on the day of Pentecost, saying that that was fulfilled on Pentecost. But when then you also look at the prophet Joel he is also looking at a time during the time of the tribulation when maybe God will once again operate in function in that way. But I would say this, that if someone today says they have a dream and it's contradictory or it goes beyond what the scripture says, then you cannot accept it. And evangelicals, are, I think, are very naive. And so there's a book that came out a few years ago on heaven. 
and this person who died and went to heaven, and then they write this book all about what they saw. Look, the scripture is our authority. What evangelicals are doing by selling that in Christian bookstores across America are embracing something that goes beyond the word of God. Now, the Bible tells us a whole lot about heaven, um, and we should start there. We shouldn't start with some dream that someone has as if it's authoritative, because if it goes beyond the scripture, then how do you know if it's true or false? And, and remember, don't ever forget that every cult is built on some dream, some vision, some revelation, some new piece of information that goes beyond the word of God. Um, again, that's not to say that, you know, God couldn't, you know, you, people dream dreams sometimes at night and maybe the spirit of God could bring you a sense of comfort in a dream. I don't want to discount what he can do. But again, if the dream goes beyond what God says, then don't put any faith in it because uh, dreams are not our final authority. The word of God is. That's a good question. I feel for this person because obviously they're grieving in their heart and they're, they're looking for some some hope. And, you know, even the rich man who dies and goes to hell, I didn't read the rest of it. He says, well, if I can't go there, then send someone from my father's house, you know, or send someone, you know, to, to go talk. Well, let me just read it because I don't want to misquote it. So I'm going to go back here real fast in, in Luke chapter 16. Uh, and again, because it affirms the same truth, he said, and he said, well, then I beg you, father, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's another way of saying the Tanakh, what we would say the Old Testament is Christians. They've got the Old Testament. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If some supernatural act comes and Lazarus happens to, you know, come up from the dead and he preaches to them, then they'll repent. But God says, no. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the written word of God, and that's all they had at this point, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So if, if they're not willing to respond to the written word of God, they're not going to respond to the supernatural. The word of God is sufficient, and that's where we really always need to start. All right, Rick, I guess I hear the music, so we're running out of time. Glad that you could join us today for the Bible line. If you are in the Beaufort County area or within a 50-mile radius of Community Bible Church, you don't have a church home, we invite you to consider coming. We have campuses in Graniteville, South Carolina. We have campuses right on the border of Hilton Head in Beaufort. Uh, there in the Bridge Center on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock there. And we have two services every Sunday morning here on our Buford campus in 9, 15, and 11. If you're a believer, you should be in a Bible-believing church. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to come and visit with us. I hope you have a great day as you worship the living God and walk with Him. <music> 